1 Samuel. We're covering chapter 12 tonight, so it's 25 verses, and we'll rock and roll through them. And the topic is leaving a legacy, leaving a legacy. So that might seem like something that doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Young folks don't get pumped hearing that kind of message, but or at least that topic. But I, I think you will, by the end of tonight, see how it's applicable uh, for all of us, something we should all be thinking about. You see, Samuel, who is the spiritual leader for the nation of Israel, uh, he has had a long life of ministry, and it's coming to a close tonight. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Old Samuel, he's leaving the picture. Saul has been anointed king, as you know, and Samuel's giving his farewell speech. So all of chapter 12, all 25 verses are this speech. Now, it kicks off with uh, the Israelites being excited because they just beat up on uh, the nation to the east of them. And Saul came through in a big way, and they're really excited. But the message from Samuel isn't just a, hey, things are going great, it's time for me to bow out. It's actually kind of a rebuke. You see, because Israel had asked for a king like other nations, uh, Samuel felt like, and you, you get a feel for that tonight, that he had kind of failed his people. That the fact that they were not depending on God to be their king anymore uh, was a slap in the face to his entire ministry. I don't think any of us want to get to the end of life, and I say this regularly, and feel like, man, we could have done something different. That we had opportunities to go left when we uh, went right, and we we messed up. And so, this is a good this is a good example of what ministry, a life of ministry, was like for Samuel. How he viewed it at the end of his life, and how we can make sure that now, today, we can be living the way that. Um, that we know we want to uh, when we get to the end of this thing and look back. So I think for most of us, the more you grow, just maturity-wise, but the more you grow in Christ, certainly, the more you realize that the only things that really matter in life uh, are the spiritual things, the eternal things, the, the kingdom impact. The older you get, again, the more you grow in Christ, you see the things around you fading away. You see them as important, but not as important as they once were. And I know what that's uh, like, certainly. When I was uh, probably about 20 years old, and, and I were starting to settle down, I had the little lawn care business in Hutchinson, and I'd purchased a little house, and we were... I was just trucking as a single guy, and I was still flirting with Christianity, but I wasn't real committed, and I was still kind of analyzing things. I remember my dad and then a couple other people had conversations with me about retirement, and I had not thought about retirement at all. I mean, I was in jail like a year earlier, so the last thing I'm thinking about is long-term retirement plans. And, uh, and I remember I would find myself, even as a single dude, watching the Susie Orman show on Saturday nights. I had an amazing social life at that point. And I just got pumped up on retirement. And it got so crazy that, um, that I started keeping track daily of the stock market. Like I made my own spreadsheet because you know you can't find any of this on Google or anywhere else. I made my own spreadsheet as to what the Dow and the NASDAQ were doing each day. They're going up and down and how it affected the 10 cents that I had put into these retirement funds. And I was just so excited on the, the thought that, man, what happens today can grow exponentially 
and, and make an impact 40 years from now. And people were saying, wow, if you start retirement at 40, that's okay. 30, you know, you're doing all right. But 20, like you could really see exponential growth with your money. And that just pumped me up. And then I got saved. <laughs> and I stopped doing that. Not because it wasn't important. It's kind of silly. But because I thought, man, we can make so much more of an eternal impact in spiritual things. And so I hope that as we go through this, tonight, every night that we do this, that you see your life, your resources, your time, your energy, the things God has given you, the relationships he's entrusted to you, and you think about how you can leverage those things for the kingdom of God, how you can make an impact that lasts uh, more than tomorrow. Because the legacy you want to leave tomorrow, you have to be living today. Does that make sense? The legacy you want to leave tomorrow, you have to be living today. So as we walk through this, ask yourself, Am I living today uh, like the legacy I want to leave? Am I living today like the legacy I want to leave? So we'll jump straight in. Chapter 12, we're going to see four things as we walk through this that we can use uh, as guidelines for leaving a legacy as followers of Christ. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. So he could be referring to Saul, who was just anointed, or himself, um, who, who was anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, so this is Israel responding back to him. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. All right. First thing we see, if you're going to leave a legacy that is of God, if you're going to make a kingdom impact, you've got to focus on walking in obedience, walking in obedience. So Israel, they're pumped up because they just win this battle and they're, they're meeting at Gilgal. This is a spiritual place that Samuel had preached to them probably many times before. And it said at the end of chapter 11 that the kingdom was renewed, like there was a renewed passion. This is finally the place that we want it to be. And it sounds pretty good at the beginning. Saul, excuse me, Samuel is just opening it up saying, hey, listen, I've obeyed you guys. We made a king over you. I've obeyed God. I've done what I'm supposed to do. And, and now he's setting a weird stage for him with these first few verses. And what he's doing is a couple things. Number one, he's simply saying and showing that he is, he is righteous. In Leviticus chapter 11, it says, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. God wants his people to reflect his holiness. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, for us, he says the same thing. Be holy as I am holy. So Samuel's just saying straight up, I had a task from God to serve you guys, and I did it. God said, do something, and I did it, and I did it blamelessly. And if you found anything against me, anything that I've done, if I am not trustworthy, if I'm not the, the guy of integrity that you uh, hope and think that I am, then call me out right now in front of everybody. 
But he's just saying, I'm, I'm, I've lived as righteously as I can. And what he's doing is setting him up for the second thing that, he, that he's saying here. And it is that he's showing himself to be blameless. Because he's about to rebuke them. And this is a weird farewell speech. He's about to rebuke them for their decision to ask for a king. Now, he's already told them over and over that you don't want to do this. You're going to enslave yourselves. It's going to be miserable. But Samuel's saying, hey, listen, my hands are clean. You know you can trust me. I've lived righteously before you. I told you do not get a king for yourself. Don't deny God as your king and follow someone else. But you're going to do it anyway. I think the, the gist of what he's saying is obviously that we need to walk in obedience. He's walked in obedience as followers of Jesus. We're going to walk in obedience. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that can sidetrack you, uh, that can overcomplicate the Christian life. But on a daily basis, our disposition should be simply one of obedience. Waking up in the morning, do you find yourself thinking, okay, my job today, just commune with Jesus, <laughs> just be spirit-led, and just be obedient to what he says? Or do you find yourself worrying about things? Do you find yourself taking uh, situations into your own hands? What do you find yourself thinking about? I think we can, we can stress ourselves out with a lot, but obedience needs to be the goal. There's a lot of things um, that are more cruel nowadays than obedience. I think obedience ha has become kind of suppressed in the Christian life. It's ho-hum, it's boring, but at the very base level of following Jesus, obedience is the most important thing. Faith and obedience. I mean, that's just, just obey him. And yet we talk about so many other things. Right now, uh, it is cool in the Christian world, the Christian culture, it is so cool to be young and restless and reformed, to have the perfect doctrine and, and to just be set. And there is church planting movements all over uh, the country and even the world with these young, restless, and reformed guys. Church planting in and of itself is, is the cool thing to do, as it should be. I hope it is. It is, it is what being a youth pastor 20 years ago was. It's, it's the thing to be if you're young and, and up and coming in the Christian world. And it's cool to blog and to be vulnerable and to talk about all that God is doing in you. That's cool. Methods, multi-site, church stuff. Like there's so many things that we promote as important and cool. And I think Jesus is sitting back saying, okay, church, I don't care if it's 2016, 1996, or somewhere long before that. Just follow me. Just be obedient. Don't lose track of what the most important thing is. Just, just follow me. Just follow me. But if you think about it, we, we may not exalt obedience, but we're amazed at obedience, are we not? I mean, okay, somebody in church on a, on a, on a Sunday morning, they raise their hand, say, I want to follow Jesus. They do the altar call thing. Like We celebrate that. You get on Twitter, Facebook, you see churches all over. We get 14 people accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior today, and there's woohoo, and people celebrate. Man, that's awesome. It should be good. But Jesus is just as pumped about the obedient step number two, three, four, five, six. As he is the first one. You, you know, everybody who, who grew up in some kind of church culture, especially in rural Kansas, you know there's that couple. There's always that couple uh, of people in the church, the older couple, um, who they just have a steadfast, persevering, awesome faith. Like, they, they just are not shaken. You know them. You grow up and you feel like, man, that was my grandma and grandpa kind of feel. To, and you just look at them and you know they have been following Jesus for more years than I've been alive. And, and they're the kind of people that or tornado comes and wipes their house away. And they're like, yeah, it's just a house. But you lived there 50 years. Well, 
God is God, and we'll keep on following him. It's going to be okay. And you're just like, where did you get this kind of just rock-solid faith? And you think as a kid, like, I want to be like them. You're amazed at it. We read stories about martyrs. What are we amazed at? We're amazed at in the face of persecution, like they were faithful and obedient. Obedience might be underrated nowadays, but it's still amazing. It's still amazing. Do you find your daily life marked with obedience? Is, is it marked by obedience? I think one thing that we struggle with today when it comes to obedience is, is just being biblically illiterate. More so, it seems like, now than, than ever before, uh, even though most of us have more Bibles in our homes than some churches around the world have total in their congregation, um, we don't know the commands of Christ. Like, if I just asked you, if I said, okay, basics, following Jesus, we're going to obey his commands. What did he command? And you had to, like, write down everything you know from the Bible that he commanded. How long of a list would that be? There would be some things we think maybe he said. Like, man, I'm not sure if that was him. or Like, do we know what he actually commanded? It's kind of scary, isn't it? That like followers of Jesus struggle to some degree to come up with what he actually asked us to do, what he actually commands. Uh, I think for a lot of us, when you think of obedience to Jesus, what, what comes to mind? I think for a lot of us, if we were honest, if, if someone says, okay, what does following Jesus look like? For a lot of us, we would simply say morality. Just have good morals. Do the right thing. And in some cases, yeah, the commands of Christ mix with morality, doing the right thing. But I think we have to separate morality from following Jesus. Because I think you can follow, I, th- I think you can be perfectly moral, at least whatever our, our nation is saying is, is good moral today, and, and fail at actually obeying the commands of Christ. I, I, think, I think in a lot of cases, they're, they're separate. It, you guys remember just a couple months ago uh, when... One of the presidential candidates um, went to Liberty University, and he, he did his whole two Corinthians spiel, and we were like, oh, gosh, that was sad. Like, we felt bad for him, and like, he doesn't even know, but he was talking to all these Christians. And, and then they asked him in an interview afterwards, they asked him, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? So this is like asking, like, the heartbeat of, of the faith. Like, have you asked God for forgiveness? And he, he went on the spiel about uh, how he was actually Pentecostal. He said, most people don't know this. <laughs> Red flag one. Um, yeah, most people don't know this, but I'm actually Pentecostal, or not Pentecostal, I'm Protestant, um, uh, Presbyterian. And, and he went on a, a rant about how some pastor who wrote a book had some really good sermons and how he just, he loved to listen. It's like, okay, that's, that's good. And how respectful he, he was of this guy and his, his good teaching. Uh, then he went in and was talking about um, how he would take his little wine and the bread and, and take his thing because it cleansed him and he liked that and it just felt good and, and he would try to do things uh, the right way and just great, wonderful. But then he, after he, he went on his spiel not answering the question, the, the guy who was interviewing him asked him again, but have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he said this. He said, I'll paraphrase him, obviously. He said, well, no, I guess I've never looked at it that way. I just try to make things right. I just try to make things right. 
And everyone who follows Jesus is like cringing inside, like, oh my, that was the, that's the entrance to the faith. And yet, his idea of Christianity was, it was, it was by definition, morality versus following Jesus. Like, he was just doing the right thing in his mind. Isn't it sad, though, that so many Christians in the world would identify with his explanation of what his Christian life looks like and say, that's pretty much what I do. It's kind of what Christianity looks like for me. And yet it was, the, it was, it was just split down to like morality compared to following Jesus. And it was incredibly evident that they are different. You see, morality um, is surpassed by the commands of Christ. And in some cases, the commands of Christ seem to even um, fly in the face of what many of us would, would call good judgment. Uh, morality falls short in that it, it doesn't ask you, um, morality doesn't ask you to die. Jesus says if a seed falls on the ground, unless it falls on the ground and, and dies, it can't bear fruit tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. Morality doesn't ask us to forgive unconditionally as the Father forgives us. Morality doesn't ask us to wash somebody's feet. Like that would be going above and beyond. Morality doesn't have a radical generosity like following Jesus' commands. You could go right down the list from loving our enemies to repenting. Morality doesn't ask the things that Jesus asks. And so if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to be obedient to Jesus, you've got to have a different spirit. Decent, good people cannot obey the commands of Christ. They can't. Decent people can, can be pretty moral and live according to those values, but they can't follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus, you have to have a heart change and a Godward disposition. You've you got to have a spirit that, that wants what the Father wants. That's the difference between morality and following Jesus. It's not just a difference in, in the commands, but the fact that one lives for the glory of God and his will, and the other one doesn't. And yet I think a lot of us have been sidetracked to think that simply following Jesus looks like being moral people. They're not always at odds. There's a lot more to it. I encourage you this. I don't know what, um, what your, your life looks like in studying Scripture on a daily basis, every couple of days, whatever it looks like for you. Uh, I know personally, a few years into my walk, I got to the point where uh, I would do New Testament book, Old Testament book, and then one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And then New Testament, Old Testament, one of the Gospels. And I've been on that routine for years, and I don't know that I'm going to switch it up because you've got to jump into the Gospels to actually absorb what Jesus himself is teaching us, what he's commanding us. And so uh, if, if you are not meditating on the commands of Christ, I encourage you to. If you find yourself weak, no, it's his spirit that's going to help you to actually live and fulfill uh, what he's asking us to do. Ask for more of his spirit. Say, I know you have sealed me with your spirit, but I, I, I feel um, ill-equipped. I feel weak today. Fill me with your spirit, and you will find 
Obedience isn't flashy, but man, it is beautiful. You got to walk in obedience if you want to leave a legacy. Verse 6, this is, a, this is kind of the, the main chunk of the passage. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought the fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. So Philistines on the west, Moab to the east, and to the north, uh, you got Hazor. So God's saying, you, you, I would give you into the hands of all of your enemies that surrounded you. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Baals and the Ashtaroth. And, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel. I love how he refers to himself in the midst of this. It sent me and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, remember that's what chapter 11 was all about. This guy was attacking them and they beat him up, came against you. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Second thing we see, if you want to leave a godly legacy, you got to deliver the right message. you got to deliver the right message. So this is kind of the core, again, of uh, Samuel's farewell dress. You could think he could go into Oscar mode, right? And he could be like, I just want to thank everyone for this uh, support I've had for all of these years of ministry, and it's amazing. But now he, he doesn't do that. He goes into um, a little bit of a rebuke. And he's reminding them, he's saying, listen, I want to plead with you. Like, I have a heart for you guys. I want to plead with you to remember. And what he does is he goes back and he, he explains the times that God has delivered. Now, there's more times than this, but it's specific to what's going on with them. Because Samuel had already warned them that if you have a king like the other nations, you will be enslaved to that king. Do you know that? And so he's going back to the Egyptians when they had enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. And like, remember what that was like? But then they cried out to God. The Israelites did. Moses, Aaron, God used them to bail you all out. And then remember, you, you had some more issues. And God bailed you out, gave you some judges, gave you some other folks, even me. And then you forgot him again, and you went through this whole routine. See, this is what's breaking Samuel's heart, is the, the routine has been that Israel is enslaved, they call out to God, God bails them out. 
But then they forget about it. Then they get enslaved, call out to God, God bails them out, then they forget. And although it's kind of a miserable little cycle, they're breaking it, which is even worse, by saying, you know what, instead of calling out to God, we want another king. And that's the core of what's breaking Samuel's heart. Because it's one thing if you're looking to God to bail you out. It's another thing if you stop asking him to bail you out. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse. So Samuel gives them this message of God's faithfulness and their need. And he's delivering this. You've got to imagine he's given this message many times before. He's got one message. God's faithful, you're not, but if you call out to him, he will be there. See, we all have a message, don't we? Like, everyone has a message. The way you live, the things you say, the things we do, our interaction, like, we're all leaving a message. The key is, you've got to deliver the right message. Do you know what your message is? Do you know what your message is? Let me ask you this. An epitaph, a little one-liner on your gravestone. Literally, it it just means the epitome of you. That's what an epitaph is. If they could sum up your life, people who are around you, people who know you or knew you, this is what they would think if they could just sum you up in one sentence. What would it say? Like based on how they know you right now, what would it say? Not just your obituary, because like you could put some flowery stuff in there and make it sound good. But just one sentence. Would it say, well, they loved the American dream and they died chasing it. Or would it be, well, they were really nice. Lived a decent life. Would it be that they didn't cause any trouble? Pretty normal. Could have been worse. <laughs> Like, what, what would it say? I don't know about you, but I want, I want mine to say something radically different than that. I, I want people um, to say, if, if you were around Ryan, you heard about Jesus. <laughs> if you were around Ryan, you, you knew about Jesus. If you saw his life, you got a good glimpse of how Jesus lived. Like, I, <laughs> I just... Matter of fact, get me out of the picture. Just write a verse on there. I don't even, like, just make it about God. Because that's the message you've got. When you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you a lifelong message and says, now, it's your job, knowing what my message is, it's your job for your life to reflect this. Now go. And live in this truth. I remember when uh, we lived in Utah, one of my grandparents died here. He was a military man. He was shot in the Korean War. And my dad, when he was born, uh, didn't see his father for the first two years of his life because his dad uh, was in a hospital bed um, from the the bullets to uh, disease. And after that, um, he was able to meet him. But he he was... uh, 
He was someone that in this country we would celebrate. Someone who fought, someone who sacrificed, whose life was changed because of that sacrifice. But I didn't know my grandparents have ever cared much about God. And I went to their funeral, and it was in, uh, it was around Fort Riley. I went to his funeral, and they had to get some random minister to do it because they didn't know (laughs) any ministers, and that in and of itself was sad. But I remember listening to this person talk at the funeral, and, and they did something that maybe most people didn't notice, but they they explained uh, his life and all of the things that he did. And then there was a shift in the message. And then it explained God and his goodness and the gospel. And most people wouldn't have noticed it, but to me, it couldn't have been any further apart. A life lived from this message shared. And I was thinking to myself, man, I do not want the gospel shared after my life is shared. (laughs) I want them to be the same stinking message. I I want them to be bleeding together so much that you can't help but to share bits and pieces of the gospel, if not the whole thing, just explaining my life. Otherwise, you couldn't explain my life without that message. Everyone else, I'm sure, thinking, hey, that's a wonderful sermon. But to me, it was heartbreaking. Your life and the message should be one in the same. And when I say message, I'm talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the implications for everyone who believes. And I, I know you know this better than I do, because even though I'm only 31, I'm old school in heart and uh, <laughs> social media is not my thing. But we have more opportunities now than ever before to get the message out. Uh, we have we have more opportunity now. You think about every <laughs> social media avenue. I thought like I was doing all right just being on Facebook, and then after l- after a couple months, I was convinced to get on Twitter. And I can't keep up with the Twitter lifestyle. Like it's a full time job. There's being on Twitter, and then there's the Twitter lifestyle, and it's exhausting. I can't do the lifestyle. I can't be tweeting about everything that's ever happened to me in the last 24 seconds. Like it just I can't I can't do it. And then I learned about, okay, Instagram. I thought Instagram was just for pictures, but it's pictures plus a bunch of text. And it's like, what? And then there's the Snapchat thing. I thought it was for 14-year-old girls, but apparently everyone uh, does the Snapchat thing now. And I'm just like, this is, this is exhausting. I cannot keep up. And at first I just said, I don't want to do any of it. And just in case you're wondering, I don't do most of it right now. But when I jumped onto the whole Twitter bandwagon, which I'm sure is probably about over, so <laughs> who knows, but I, I, re- I, I did it for this reason. You know what? It doesn't feel comfortable, don't like it, don't want one more thing to do, but if I can influence people for Christ in one more way, I'm going to do it. God's given me an opportunity one more way, I'm going to do it. Because you never know what's going to happen. I'll say what I said at the beginning. You've got your life the energy, the time, the resources, the relationships God has given you. And he's saying, leverage them for the gospel. I did not give these things for your pleasure more than my glory. Use them for my glory and you'll find pleasure in them. Silas, we went hiking Wilson Lake over the weekend. It was an awesome little hike um, and to this Rocktown area. And 
we got to their uh, beach and, and we're overlooking the lake. And Silas, he's just obsessed with throwing rocks in the water. Like we were at a uh, get-together in a strong city not too long ago, and there's a big puddle. And he spent most of his time just throwing rocks in the puddle. And then at home, he's throwing rocks in puddles. And then we go here, and we're on the beach area, and it's beautiful, and there's boats, and there's things going on. And all he wants to do is throw rocks in the stinking lake over and over. Like, he just picks them up. He just chucks them in, picks them up, chucks them in. He gets little ones. He gets big ones. And Tara and I are just sitting there watching him. That's all he wants to do is chuck rocks into the lake. I don't know what he gets out of it. I don't know what he's thinking is going to happen, like if it's going to build up a little dam or something. But eventually, it would build up some kind of little water or wall in the water. I was looking at it, and I was thinking, you know, this is (laughs) not much different than some days how it feels being a Christian, trying to get this message out uh, in a world of lostness that's pushing up against us as the water seemed to represent. And we just look like we're standing on the shore, just chucking in rocks, chucking in stones, trying to make a splash or a dent in the lostness. But you know, if he kept throwing those rocks in, and all his friends kept throwing their rocks in, and the three, four hundred people at Crosspoint were throwing their rocks in, eventually, you're going to see a dent in that lake. And if everyone does their part, you're going to see it change. It's going to make an impact. And he might not be seeing those rocks piled high now, but when drought comes, he's going to see, when the water recedes a little bit, he's going to see everything he throw up there, it's going to come back. He's going to see, remember, what he had done days, weeks, months earlier. When you're planting kingdom seeds, when you throw something out on Twitter, when you have a conversation with someone, you're like, I don't even have much time to get to know them. They're, they're you know, at the cash register, at the gas station, but you're just pouring in just a little bit at a time, knowing you can't conquer it all in a day. A little bit of time, I'm building a relationship, or we're talking a little bit about faith as it's brought up, just a little at a time. I'm telling you what, through the seasons of life, you'll start to see Whether it's days, weeks, or years down the road, you'll see those seeds start to bear some fruit. You'll see those rocks start to make a little bit of a wall and a dent in the lostness that you're fighting against. It can be overwhelming, and sometimes you don't know where to start, but God has given you relationships today. Use them. Use them. And I'll say this before we move on. Notice how Samuel's message uh, isn't just the good news of God's faithfulness. It's the bad news of man's rebellion and Israel's rebellion. You got a message, and some of us, we love talking about the grace and the mercy of God. And we'll sit down with anyone and talk to them about it. Are you giving them the bad news that leads to the good news? Are you talking to them about their junk? You got friends and you know they're living (laughs) crazy. And you tell them about God's mercy when they're down? Are you you telling them that it's time to repent? Are you telling them that it's your sin that led Jesus to the cross as well as his love? Is that that something that you're talking about? It takes guts to preach that message, but it's the message we have. If you want to leave a legacy, you've got to have the right message. Verse 16. 
Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. It is not, is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Third thing we see, if you want to leave a godly legacy, you've got to be a conduit for God's power. You've got to be a conduit for God's power. So Samuel says, listen, I've been a faithful servant, and I have given you this message but I'm not just going to tell you about the message. You're going to see the power of the message right now. Romans 1 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. If it's the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe, then everyone who has been saved is evidence of God's power, are we not? We're evidence of God's power. I think Samuel is sending us a message in this. That you can say all day long what God has done, but if you're not living proof of what he has done, it's just a little less effective. You see, it would have been, uh, for them, May and June, and it would have dried up. And so when they had rain and thunder coming down, the people around them would have known. They would have known it is not natural for it to be raining right now. They would have known this rain is directly because of God, and you saying, hey, God's going to do this, and it's going to be a sign for you. It's going to be a sign. And it represents the fact that, again, Israel broke the natural order of things when they asked for a king instead of God to bail them out. People know this. Here's the beautiful thing about being a conduit for God's power is if you open yourself up, God will use you in powerful ways. Like in this deprived, just crazy, nasty um, (laughs) world that we live in, it's not terribly hard to shine, right? It's not terribly hard to shine. When I, when I went to jail, my reputation in the little town I came from and in the courthouse in Manhattan, Kansas, was not good. I had two felonies within six weeks of one another, and one of them I was accused of um, picking up a a piece of steel and beating another kid with it in shop class so much so that I had to buy him new shoes, new pants, all new clothes because he had that much blood coming from his face. That's who I was prior to Christ. And it just happened to come out on him that day, but I was begging for a fight. I was calling out. I was crying for help for years prior to that. And then they knew that, and it made the radio, and then I got kicked out of school, and there was three judges up there, and one of them was known as kind of the hardest, the worst judge, and he, he got my case, and uh, I had met him, and he just knew, I, he, just, he just did not like me. And so when I, was, um, when I was in trouble for that, and then I got in trouble for another felony for the same thing, within six weeks, he, he just, man, I could just tell this judge despised me. But I went through the legal process and spent my time in jail and and I did what I was supposed to do and hated it every bit of the way. And the judge made it clear the day he sentenced me that he thought I was a nasty human being 
and, and that at the very least, like he thought what he had sentenced me to was lenient. And I went through it. As, as many of you guys know, in the next few years, life changed for me. A few years later, gave my life to the Lord. But I was trying to be a firefighter and EMT. And as I was finishing up school for that, I had to get certified in the state of Kansas. To do that, I had to get my felony expunged off my record. And I had to wait X amount of time to do that and whatnot. Normally, it's just, fi- it's just a little bit of paperwork you file. And 90% of the time, my lawyer said, hey, the judge just signs up off on it. And your record's clean. And you can go on with life. But the judge remembered me. <laughs> he knew who I was. And he said, I want to see you in person. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So said, okay, let's do this. So I went to a special court hearing with that judge who sentenced me years ago and the prosecution who stood there fighting for me to be sentenced years ago. And I don't know what they were expecting, but they simply asked, how how are you deserving of this to be expunged off your record? I don't know what all I said to them about that, but I took that opportunity to share the gospel with them. I shared the gospel with the judge. I shared the gospel with the prosecution. And in God's divine sovereignty, um, in that whole process, the kid that I ended up beating up uh, that led to all of this, I saw in the courthouse, uh, even though I lived in Hutchinson, I came back one day, and at that moment, he happened to be there, and I was able to share the gospel with him. And that was that was even separate from the day I shared with the judge and with the prosecution. What I'm saying is that God took an incredibly broken situation and redeemed it. And there's a million of those situations in your life. There's relationships right now that feel like they're going nowhere. And God wants you, he, he wants to use you to show his power. And he wants to redeem that. You've got jobs that seem like, hey, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to quit tomorrow or two weeks or two months, but I know it's soon and I'm just miserable and I want to be done with it. And God's saying, I want to show my power through you in there. I didn't put you in that job just to get a little bit of cash. I put you there so that my kingdom would be expanded and that I would get glory. Show my power. Show my power. So how do you show God's power? How do you show? You got to take steps of faith. You got to take huge steps of faith. That's let me ask you this. Your life as a believer, do you find yourself rearranging and applying faith to your life or do you find yourself rearranging your life to your faith? Because the latter is what God wants. He wants people who are saying, you know what? I know there's circumstances. I got to work jobs and I got to do these things in life. We just have to do what we have to do. But... Um, <laughs> I don't want people who are just going to say, okay, take a little bit of faith and pour it onto my circumstance and see if God will bless and help me through what I'm going through. He wants people who are going to say, you know what? As a follower of Jesus, my disposition in life is to walk by faith. I'm waking up not thinking what my job is going to be, how these relationships are going to go. I'm thinking, how can I take a step of faith in the kingdom today? And I'm going to take it, and those other things, they're going to happen. I'm going to work jobs. I'm going to have relationships. It's going to happen. But it's not the primary priority for me in and of itself. Taking the steps of faith and whatever that looks like is the priority. Here's what I mean. Uh, you can go buy a house. You can buy a house uh, because you like the neighborhood, because it has X amount of bedrooms. You can buy a house because of the price. 
Or you can go and buy that house and say, you know what, God, if you want me to buy this house and I want to see your kingdom expanded, how well does this house do when it comes to hospitality? How big is the dining room? How many people can I cram around this table? That's a different way of looking at a house. Let that lead in your decision making. You, you're about to graduate college. And you think, okay, where am I going to go? If I could go to a big city to get a job, that's normal. Kansas City, you go to Wichita, you can go wherever. Dallas, Denver. You could follow the money. Say, well, whenever I, I get the best opportunity, I'm just going to take it. Or you could say, you know what? I know Crosspoint wants to plant churches. Where, where have they been praying about? Maybe I can be on a team that will go there and, and we'll, we'll get a job there. But it's going to be a place that I know I can impact the kingdom. J.D. Greer, pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina, asks all the college students, and they've got thousands and thousands of people, all the college students who are graduating each year, if they'll give the church two years, two years to move to a city that they've been praying over and be part of a team and get a job there, but make that church plant their priority and expand the kingdom of God. After that, whatever, but just two years. If you don't know where God's telling you to go, you're still uncertain. Instead of just figuring out the best place to go, go to a city that we're praying over. Be part of this team. It's not uncommon for them to have 100 graduating seniors spread out throughout the cities and plant churches. It's a completely different way of thinking about your resources and your decision making. Because if you want to have God's stories, you got to follow God's will. And, and I'll say this for those who are a little bit older in the room. Samuel said earlier in this chapter, he said, I am old and gray. I'm old and gray. And yet here we see 15, 16 verses later, the power of God working through him in mighty ways. He's like, he's preaching, and then boom, God's power comes down. He didn't retire from the faith. God's not done with you. Matter of fact, I think if we're going to see revival in this country, we've got to stop looking at the next generation and say, you know what, it's the current generation. It's the people who have seen God's faithfulness the longest that need to be proclaiming it the most. Last but not least, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So like they're humbled. They're just like, oh my gosh, this is miserable. Picture them out there thinking this is dry. We're going to harvest our wheat. We're listening to this sermon. It's kind of good at the beginning. Now it's getting mean and it's kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, boom, he says it's going to rain. And now it's just pouring and thunder and rain. And they're just sitting in the rain and they're crying back out to Samuel. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. How many times do you feel sorry for yourself? And God's like, it doesn't change the next step. Just follow me. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. There's beauty in those verses. We could talk a lot about that. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. 
Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things the Lord has done. Oh, that's beautiful. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Both you and your king. The last thing we see, if you want to leave a godly legacy, is you've got to love and serve his church. You've got to love and serve his church. So the first thing we see in these last verses is God's mercy. His mercy on the people. Samuel's like, don't forget God's mercy. I know right now I just delivered some bad news for the gazillionth time that you guys have messed up. But do not forget God is merciful. He will forgive you. He will take you back. His love is relentless. You can fail, but he will forgive. You just got to turn to him. I'll tell you what. (laughs) When Samuel tells them that this one verse, for consider the things he has done for you. You want your motivation, <laughs> you, want, you want your heartbeat, you want some power to live in a godly way and to leave a legacy, you got to just meditate and consider on the things he has done for you. I can't convince you otherwise, only God himself and what his word says is going to convince you of what God has done and his faithfulness. But second, I think it also shows Samuel's love for the people. He has a heart for him. he's devoted to serve them, and I think he gives that same call to every single one of us. You see, you can't find yourself loving God and growing in your love for God and yet despising his church at the same time. Because Jesus didn't die just for you, he died for his people. And his power is not meant to just work through your ministry and what he's called you specifically to. It's it's his entire church. Believe it or not, when God sees you, he doesn't just see you. He sees everybody in this room and everyone who's not in this room. He sees his people. We make up one body. We're the bride. There's no rogue Christians, right? Because when you're saved, you're not just saved from sin. You're saved into a family. We don't talk enough about that. That's a beautiful part of the gospel, that you're saved into a brand new body, not just from something. You're saved into something beautiful. Crosspoint reaches um, some interesting groups of folks. One, One of those groups Uh, tend to be people of 30s, 40s, 50 years old, where they maybe grew up in the church, uh, maybe a liturgical denomination, maybe in the Catholic church. They couldn't understand uh, a lot of things about God, or they just didn't feel like the sermons were relatable or whatnot. Maybe they had uh, a bad experience with the church. Their hearts were broken because people betrayed them or betrayed their family. And so for years, they found themselves just don't care anything about church. And yet they come to Crosspoint, they see we do things a little bit different, they hear Andy's sermons, they're like, I can relate, I hear that all the time. They're like, I haven't been in church in a long time, but I can relate to what he's saying. It's, a, it's just so simple, and it just makes sense. I thank God that he gifted Andy in that way. But as you grow, if you find yourself in that boat, as you grow, you can't be asking God to expel this way and yet still pushing away his church and keeping them at arm's length. The gospel that is helping you to love God right now also wants to heal the hurt you have with his church. We reach another group of people, the millennials, who, who uh, they love the multi-site thing. They love the, the music and, and the exciting things that we do. But yet, when you have conversations with, with many of them, and I'll throw myself in this boat, because I, I was the king of, of this, unfortunately. They're sick and tired of the institution. 
that they think of church and they're just like, man, I hate just buildings and it should be more natural and they like house churches and they like, man, just doing things different. So they'll come to a worship service because the preaching's decent, the coffee's okay, and their friends come, but like they don't really want to serve or get involved because it's just not, man, it's just the institution and it's not the holistic way that God meant for his church to be. Listen, if that's you, number one, God didn't make you a professional church critic. There is no position like that in the church. And number two, what you're really saying is I love methods and my idea of church more than the church itself. I, I love my idea of, of what uh, church should be more than I actually love the people. I'm telling you what, if you jump in and actually serve the people behind these doors, if you actually get involved in their lives, you're going to find your conversations and your thoughts of what church should look like is going to fall aside because you're too worried, you're too consumed with just being the church with the church. So if you find yourself in either one of those boats, God wants to heal you. He wants to break you out of your displeasure or distaste for the church and say you're part of this and this is a blessing. Serve the people around you. Serve them. Serve them. I can't imagine what non-believers think. Any of you guys got, um, you got an ailment in your body that just doesn't seem to go away? This habitual just pain. I've shared a bunch of times before, and I won't get into all of the details, but I have had heartburn issues for like 15 years, and every few years for a while, I would find myself just throwing up blood, um, going and getting procedures done, and I take some Nexium every day for the rest of my life. It's just going to be that way. But the bad thing about it is that if you've got something that's a pain in your body, it takes all the attention away from the things that are going well, does it not? And what's happening is you've got a part of your body, whether it's Paul's thorn in his flesh or my heartburn or whatever you got going that's, that's aching in your body, and it is rebelling against the other parts of the body. It's not serving well with the other parts of the body. Something is wrong. And everyone you talk to knows way more about the pains you got going on than they do anything else in your body even though 99% of your body might be healthy and good. I think that's what a non-believing world sees when we have a whole generation of people who are falling in love with God, but they don't like his church. And they're saying, you know what? <laughs> Something's rotten. So I don't even want to know your God if you don't even care about his church. want to leave a Christ-centered legacy. You got to walk in obedience. It's not flashy, but it's beautiful. And it ain't changing. You got to deliver the right message, and that's the gospel. Both in the way you live and the way you proclaim. You got to be a conduit for God's power. He wants to use you today, tomorrow, and every other day. got to love his church because he died for his church let's pray